Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So we are here again in Hebrews. Um, If you've joined us maybe today and it's been a while and and you haven't caught us up uh, in the Hebrew study, uh, just remind you that Hebrews uh, is a a book written basically to uh, Jewish people um, that are now believers. Um, There's some speculation to how faithful they are and and maybe they're they're kind of really struggling, this group of people is really struggling to leave the sacrificial system and all the traditions and and the old covenant and so um, they're really maybe struggling and this writer's really kind of pushing in and saying, well this is why you need to believe and here's the consequences for why if you don't believe And, and we've looked at that over the last several weeks. Not sure who the author is, um, but um, it is a very powerful book. Uh, references a lot of the Old Testament because, remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and so they're very steeped in the, the history and the Old Testament and the, um, you know, the, the, the Torah and all of that, the Psalms and the prophets. And they're just very steeped in all that, and that's what they know. That's what they've been raised with and, and come to understand and believe in, which has been all good. Um, but now something new has happened. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled prophecy. He has become the Messiah. And, and so now he's, he's been dead and resurrected and ascended, and, and now there's these Jews that are kind of like, okay, was that really the Messiah that was here? Like, because if it was, you know, I don't know. And what about this? And so the author's really just trying to push into this group of people. Um, and, and we don't know, was this all Jewish people? That, in other words, was, was this letter meant for every Jew that was a believer? Some people believe that this was to a certain group of Jews that were a little bit more hesitant, even though they believed, but they were struggling a little bit. Um, and I would say that some Christians are in that category at times. Like, we believe, but yet... Uh, you know, I had someone come up to me after first service and say, well, this Trinity thing, you got to help me. And so we walked through some things, and I said, you know, I, I can't fully explain that. I mean, God is eternal, and I can't, I can't tell you how that happens, except for he's God. And so there's certain things that, that we, I said, I, I see enough about who he is, and enough to believe who he is, and, and proof of who he is, that when I come to something that I don't quite understand, I can yield and say, yeah, but he is who he says he is, and I trust his word. Right? And, so, and, and that's why we are saved by grace through faith. Right? There's a piece of it that we just believe because God said it and we trust who God is. And so that's kind of where they're at. And so here in this, this text today, he's basically saying that if, if all those things that I've been telling you in the first two chapters, and obviously he didn't write in chapters, we have did that some years later, but if all that I've been writing to you in this letter before now is true about God, and what has he said is true about God, that or Jesus, that he was before all things. He was preeminent. He's greater than the angels. Last week we looked, he's greater than Moses, right? He, he has fulfilled scripture. If all that's true and you don't believe, that's a problem. There's, there's no other hope for you if you don't believe after all that he's done, after all that he's fulfilled. And so there's this really, this text now is a warning of unbelief. And so what's the big idea for us this morning? Is that we are responsible to believe, you and I, this morning, as you've heard, you're going to hear the gospel, and you, many of you have heard it many, many times in your life, we have a responsibility to believe it. And what does it mean to believe? It means that not only do you have an intellectual knowledge of something, but you have uh, a connection with it in such a way that you've given your life away. We sang, um, I surrender my life, right? It, it means we surrender our will. We surrender all of who we are. In fact, many times we talk about this idea of our heart, 
Um, the Old Testament says that one of the prophets says that, you know, God has given us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Because in our heart, one of the songs we sang is, you know, change our heart. Give us a new heart. This idea that as, as, as human beings, we want what we want. Because of our, our sinful nature, we need God's help to change. We, we can't, because of our nature, we can't change without him doing something. But he partners with us. When he does that in us, he causes us to be born again, as I mentioned during the announcements. We must believe. There's this thing that happens at the same time. It's a, it's a mystery how this all works out. But we have a responsibility to believe. We must believe. And so that's one of the reasons why God gives us the scriptures. He says, look, I'm going to show you the evidence. And all through the Gospel of John, what did he say? They came to Jesus. What must we do to be saved? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And so we have a responsibility to believe. And so now what the author is doing here in Hebrews is saying, because of all of this, because all the things I've just unpacked for you and showed you who he is, I brought the Old Testament forward, I've said who Jesus is, if all of that, you must believe. And if you don't, that's it. There's only two categories here, belief and unbelief. There's no third category, folks. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And so today we're going to kind of do something a little different. We're going to look at, um, I'm going to give you two commands in Scripture. Or I should say out of this text, two commands. These are not my commands. Two commands that we're going to see here. Four warnings that the author is going to give us. And four truths that he's going to open up. And so two commands, four warnings, and four truths. All right. Now before we jump into our text today, um, and we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to move pretty quickly. I want to let you know that the first four or five verses here in the text is really a quote from Psalm 95. The author is quoting something from the past, from a psalmist, because once again, he's appealing to the Jewish people that has been reading. They already know this psalm. And so he's, he's going back and saying, this is not just what, now what Jesus is doing, but this is, this, is, this is, you know this text. And he's reminding them of this text. Then he's going to talk a little about the consequence of this text. All right. So we're not going to go and read Psalm 95, but I would encourage you to do that um, to, to kind of connect it. But it's basically a quote of this text. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. All right, here this word is again, right? Therefore, we're going to see this a couple times today. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your father put me to the your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, so I've already explained that a little bit. Therefore, if Jesus has done all these things, he is greater than the angels. He is our great high priest we looked at last week. He's greater than Moses. He's fulfilled all of the prophecies. Therefore, if that's true, right? If that's that's true, and he's been arguing that point in the first couple chapters here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now I want to just pause on that one for a second. As the Holy Spirit says, that phrase there is, is in present tense. What does that mean? Like, who cares? I don't like English. Who cares, right? Um, present tense, that means he's saying it right now. In other words, it's, he's always saying it. This is a living word. It's not the Holy Spirit said some thousands of years ago. No, the Holy Spirit is saying right now. So that means he's saying to you and to me, the Holy Spirit is talking to us. This isn't a past tense thing. So he's writing to his readers, because remember, he's quoting something that was written even before them. It was a psalm. He says, as the Holy, Scripture, as the Holy Spirit says, today, right, today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. So this, this thing about the Holy Spirit speaking, what does that help us to understand? First of all, if he's quoting a psalm, and he says, as the Holy Spirit says, what is he acknowledging? He's acknowledging that the scriptures, the psalms, are the word of God. They are the infallible word of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking This is not some psalmist just writing something. No, the Holy Spirit is working and writing through someone to communicate what God wants us to know. So it's the Scripture is the Word of God. We see this in Hebrews. We'll probably probably get to here next week in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. But what is, we're going to jump forward a little bit and read this text. Verse 12 of chapter 4. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. The Word of God is powerful beyond belief. It cuts to the very heart of who we are. It, it, it reveals who we are. It reveals our sinfulness. It, and that's why, I would be honest with you, that's why a lot of people I don't think like reading Scripture, because it is a, it's a mirror to our soul. And, and as, as, as unbelievers, we don't, we don't sometimes want to see who we are. But he's saying, look, it's that powerful. And so when the Holy Spirit's speaking, he's speaking to us. And so how do I want to say this? So today, as, as we read the Word of God and we study it, I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is talking right now to you. Not 2,000 years ago. Yes, he was talking then too. But it's present tense. He's talking right now. So when I read the Word of God, he's speaking to you, just like he was speaking to the original hearers of this letter. Right? He's speaking to you and me. Right? So with that said, it goes on there and it says, today, right? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, right? If you hear his voice. That word today is means it's urgent. Today, right now. You need to listen. Not tomorrow, not next week, not, not when you get a chance, not when you retire, not when you graduate high school and, and get to live out the, your college years and when you get a family, then I can come around and listen to what the gospel has to say. No, today. I don't care how old you are. Today. It needs to be right now. And so this idea that it's urgent, that's what the author is trying to get across. Now think about this for a second. He's, he's building on this. Right? If he says, hey, this is who Jesus was, that's who I've been telling you he is, the Holy Spirit is talking, it's not just me, the Holy Spirit is talking, and so with that said, you need to listen today, not, not tomorrow, it's that important. God is speaking to you. He's laid out who he is, and he's speaking and sharing who he is, not later. And then he says, if you hear his voice, we've already established, we are hearing his voice. And what the author really is saying this is if you, if you hear the word of God and you can sense that God is speaking to you, this is something that you need to act upon right away. This is not something that you, you put off. And so I'm going to give you the first command that God gives us in the text here, the first command of the two. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. It says there in the text, it says, if you hear, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what's he referring to, this rebellion? We're going to spend some time here, but I'll kind of give you a preface of where we're going. In the Old Testament, uh, if you remember, if you, um, for those of you maybe are not real um, deeply aware of, of your scriptures, you ever saw the Ten Commandments like, right? Moses leads the Israel people out of bondage of 400 years, and Egypt leads them out, takes them into the wilderness, crosses the Red Sea. Um, you know, they get the Ten Commandments, and they end up spend 40 years in the wilderness. That's what he's referencing here. That event that took place. 
The people of Israel who had been put in bondage by Pharaoh hundreds of years earlier, they'd grown up into a nation. They didn't intermarry because they were slaves, so they could only marry in themselves. And he made them a great nation while they were in bondage, right? And then God sets them free. He delivers them, sends Moses to the people, sets them free, gives them much of, of Egypt's gold. He doesn't send them away uh, empty-handed. He gives them their flocks, their herds, and, and he sets them free, right? And so he says, don't harden your heart. Why? Because your grandfather and your grandparents did. And I'm going to share you, the author's saying, I'm going to tell you what they did, and, and, and you don't want to be them. And I'm going to tell you why you don't want to be them, because we're going to recount that story, and it's not pretty, right? It's not pretty. And so he gives this command not to harden our heart. Now, the fact that it is a command, what does it tell us? It means that we have a responsibility to believe. It goes back to the big idea. If Jesus, or if God can give us a command, it means that we can obey the command. He wouldn't give us a command if it was, had, we had to do it. We have a choice to obey, to believe. And so today, as, as we read this text, as we study this text, you have the choice whether to believe what the text is saying. You have a choice whether you surrender your life to Christ, whether you give in to who God is and what he says or not. We have a choice to do that. David Zurich, or Gerzik, um, if you use Blue Letter Bible, um, he's a commentator in there, and I wanted to give him credit for this because this is a quote that he has in there, and I thought this was, was uh, pretty poignant. He says, If those who followed Moses were responsible to surrender, trust, and to persevere in following God's leader. So in the wilderness, they were following Moses. And if you remember correctly, the Jews here that he's writing to, they've esteemed Moses very highly. And in that time, these people followed Moses. Millions of Jews were following Moses in the wilderness by his leading. As if those who followed Moses were responsible, and they were, to surrender, to trust, and to persevere in following God's teacher. We are much more responsible to do the same with a great leader, Jesus. Now think about that for a second. What the, author, what, what, what the commentator is saying is, look, we know by looking at the scripture that they were responsible to follow Moses' lead to follow his commandments, to, to do what he said, right? He was speaking on behalf of God. And, and we're going to see that when they didn't do that, in unbelief, they perished, right? And we're going to be very clear about that. And what the commentator is just pointing out of Scripture, he says, look, if that's true for them, and Jesus comes, God in the flesh, lives a sinless life, dies for you, and then gives us instructions to follow him, and we don't follow him, Oh, how much more responsible we must be. That's really what the author is trying to get across here. Right? Because remember, they don't, they don't want to leave what they believe. They're still kind of hooked on Moses in the Old Testament. But he's now just ratcheting it up just like he did last week and says, no, Jesus is higher than Moses. So we absolutely must follow him and believe. All right, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 and 11. Excuse me, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, once again, now he's still in this quote of Psalm 95. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Okay, I only have a time to talk about just a couple things in there. But this, this first of all, God says, it's the, the psalmist says, they provoked, uh, I was provoked with that generation. What, what does that mean, he was provoked? It means he was disappointed and I would go far even say that word could be translated, he was disgusted with them. He was disgusted with them. I mean, think about this now. 
They'd been living in bondage for 400 years under a taskmaster's whip, making bricks, right? And, and building all the, all the cities of, of Ramsey and all of that stuff. And, and God has set them free. He's feeding them. He split the Red Sea. He's given the law. He's done all of this. He's brought to deliver in Moses. And he's done all of that. And they then rebel. They, they murmur. They, they're not satisfied. They, they, don't, they don't like what God has done, right? They want to go back. They say, in fact, you can, I would encourage you to read some of this in the Old Testament, Numbers and Deuteronomy. They basically say, Moses, you've led us out here in the wilderness to die. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back there. Really? I mean, he's just made you a nation, gave you all of Egypt's gold, brought you out, making you a people. He's promised them a promised land, right? And that was, that was foretold and promised to Abraham that he was going to give them a land, make them a nation, and yet they don't believe. They're murmuring, they're not happy, they're tired of eating manna, right? And, and they, just, they just are rebellious. And I, you know, many of us would say, boy, if we were there, we would have believed. No, we wouldn't. No, because that is the condition of the human heart. Think about all the things that God has done for you. And I know your life may be difficult, don't get me wrong. I, I sympathize, I empathize with that. But God has given you life. If you're a believer, He's given you eternity. He's died for you. He's become a, a man and, and suffered for us. He identifies, we identify with our sufferings with him because he suffered for us. He's given you children. He's given you, we live in grace. I mean, you, you're, today you're going to go outside and I think it's going to be nice out, I think. It's going to be beautiful. Um, you're going to get to, your taste buds are going to get lit up when you go to lunch someplace and you're going to experience the taste and textures of food and, and you're going to get to experience relationships and love and and. and heartache and all of those things. But, but God has done all of those things to us. And yet, we murmur. <laughs> and yet we rebel against him. Even us. Even with all that we know, even with all the scripture, it is the human heart to go and to leave him. Right? It's just who we are. It is who we are. I, I want to um, share with you just quickly, I, I gave an example for service and uh, it's a little bit like my, my dog, Finn. He's wired a certain way. He's a German Shepherd. And I have to train him sometimes not to be wired the way he's wired, <laughs> right? Because I don't want him to do some of the things he's wired to do, right? And so I will share with you a couple days ago, um, it's, you know, it's springtime. And what do, we, what do you have in springtime in your yard? You have little bunny rabbits. And it's Easter, right? And there's little tiny bunnies, like three of them. And he found them in a part of our flower bed. I know many of you are thinking, oh, I don't want to hear this, right? Don't tell me this. It's going to be okay. So I see one little bunny, you know, he's in the, he's in the, you know, the flower beds rooting around. I see one bunny go that way and one bunny go that way. And he looks up and he's got a bunny in his mouth. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I got one. And I said, Finn, drop that. Foomp, <laughs> you know, and boom, the bunny took off, right? Everybody said, amen, right? Praise the Lord. Um, but that wasn't his nature, was it? Now I had to train him. I had to do something to change that nature. Because in his nature, that bunny wouldn't have seen the light of day, right? Then that he wouldn't have dropped him. And it's a lot like that with God. We need God to change our nature. And he does that by causing us to be born again and give us a new heart. And that's what changes our nature. We don't change our nature. We, we can be good for a while, but our nature doesn't change unless God does something in us to change us. And he says he gives us a new heart. He causes us to be born again. All right, so 
He was provoked. He was disgusted by their, by their obedience, their lack of obedience here after all that he'd done. And then what does he say? He says, I, he says, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, and as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So God swears in his wrath. What does that mean? It means that he's just. In other words, because of his justice, he can't overlook this. They've sinned against him. They've, they've done all of these things, and, and they're just rebellious. And so his, his justice requires a punishment for that. And, and we, we agree with justice. I've had this conversation with, from the pulpit and with many of you. We agree in just, with justice. We believe if somebody does something horrible, we want them to be tried and, and, and convicted of a, a jury of their peers. And if it's, if it's solid, we want them to go to prison or whatever it is. Because if you kill somebody, this is what happens. These people have rebelled against a holy God, and justice has to be done. And so the way that that's expressed is, is a wrath, is a punishment, which is just and right, right? And one of the things there that he says is one of the fallouts of that is that they will not enter my rest. So what is he saying there? He's saying a lot of things, I think. But, so we're going to try and show a few things I think the author here is kind of referencing. One, he's talking about a physical place, the promised land, where they're not going to enter the promised land. They're not going to get to go there. They're all going to die in the wilderness. Ages 20 and up, not going to make it, right? They've rebelled. They're not going to make it. I'm not going to let them have They're not going to enter the rest. He wanted to have the land of milk and honey. He wanted to have that. Not going to have it. But I think there's much more than what he's referencing here in the text. They're not going to enter God's rest. Well, if you go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, they were, we were at rest. Everything was good. We walked with God. Adam and Eve were with God. They, there was a relationship there, and that broke. Unrest happened, right? And then we were at, at, at war with God, basically. We were, we were adversarial to God, right? Our heart is set against God now because of our sin. And someday, God is going to make rest available again. In fact, he already has made rest available again through the person of Jesus. We can have rest in Christ. And ultimately, that's going to be fulfilled in glory when we ultimately die and go into heaven. And, and someday, there'll be a new heaven, a new earth. There'll, there'll be a resurrection, and, and we will have ultimate rest. No more pain, no more cancer. None of that will be there. Praise God. And, and so we enter into rest. We enter into Christ. And so what he's saying here to the author and what he's saying to the, the as you could say, to the readers here is that, look, your parents, your grandparents, or how far back we need to go, didn't enter into rest, didn't enter into the promised land, and they ultimately didn't enter into God's rest because of sin and because of disobedience. That means that I believe what he's saying is that they don't, they're not spending eternity with God. They're not spending it. And he's, he's warning the hearers of his letter here that if you do not listen closely and you do not act upon this today, you will not enter God's rest either. That's what he's saying. And I think that is a word for us today. And so what's the first warning here we have? There are eternal consequences. The first warning he gives us is that there are eternal consequences for our disobedience, for our unbelief, Right? He's really talking about unbelief. All right, we see this a little bit in Jude chapter 1. If you're a, um, a reader of Scripture, Jude only has one chapter. So it's an easy book to read. Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Jude is a half-brother of Jesus. And look at what he says here. He says, now I want to remind you. So he's speaking to the church here. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those, destroyed those who did not believe. Now, 
Two things I want to point out about that passage. One, who delivered them out of Egypt? Not Moses, Jesus. Jesus was there in the Trinity working to deliver them out. He is the deliverer. Because Moses is only a picture of Christ. Moses, many times we can see, stands in the gap and is, is kind of their high priest. But, because, but really, he's just a picture of Jesus. And I love how Jude just points it. He gets it like, wow, that was my brother. <laughs> I mean, that was the son of God back then, working and, and being a, uh, an actual um, witness here about how he delivers them who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, after, des- afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. So what I, what I want to kind of share you, with you there is, look, you can experience wonderful things in the world. You can have children. You can have God's grace. You can uh, have success. You can enjoy food and all the, the, you know, the, the common grace that God gives us. You can feel the sun on your face. You can take vacations, enjoy yourself. You can do all of those things. You can have love and, and, and be in love, just like they were, right? They, they had much. They, they were delivered. They, they got all of that. They, they were fed by God. They were, they were given drink by God. They were cared for by God in the wilderness. They were given the law. They, there was this beautiful thing. But if you don't believe, you're going to perish, right? Afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. So it's, it's not enough just to know, right? It's not enough just to know. We'll see that here in a minute, right? Let's go on to the next passage. Verse 3, 13, in, or chapter 3, verse 13, uh, 12 and 13. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you and in, in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this, this first word here, take care, maybe a better way to say it, be aware of, be discerning, uh, have an understanding. So if these things have happened, if this is true that the psalmist writer in 95 said these things, and this is who God is, and this is what happened to our ancestors because they didn't believe, and, and all of those things, right, that God didn't let her end them to the rest. If that's true, guys, we need to pay attention. We need to be cern- discerning about what the Holy Spirit is telling us right now. And who's he addressing? He says, his brothers, right? He's talking to people that have professed Christ. Then he says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This term, unbelieving heart. Um, an unbelieving heart is a heart that has, is opposed to God. It, it set itself in rebellion against God. It doesn't want to believe. It, doesn't, it, it just rebels, right? It, it sets itself against him. Right? It's really the best way to describe it. And what's interesting there is not only does he say it's an unbelieving heart, because, and this is that idea that there's no middle ground again. The author is saying, don't, don't be an unbeliever, because if you're an unbeliever, you won't enter God's rest. So that means you need to believe. But notice there he says, even before he says unbelieving heart, he says, there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart. Well, okay, I'm not a believer, but I'm not evil. no. I hate to break this to you, you are. If you've set your heart against God, that is evil. He's the creator of all things. There is no third place there. There's no neutral ground to say, well, I don't believe, but I'm not evil. No, either you're for God or you're against him. He's the creator. 
of all things. Either you've set your heart against him or not. And the author is just pointing that out is that's an, that's an evil spirit. The, you know, the, the Lord of this world is, is the devil. And, and we are either for him. And that's why Jesus is able to say, you know, um, when he's talking to the Jewish Pharisees and says, he, he's your father, the father of lies. He's your father. You're evil because you reject the Messiah, because you have set your heart against him. So just want to show you that there. Give you a quote, um, Charles Spurgeon, um, theologian from many years ago and uh, uh, quotes this, and I think this is is really good. There's one piece of it that I really want to highlight to you, but Spurgeon says this. He says, hearken, O unbelievers. So he's just kind of speaking to unbelievers here in his quote. You have said, I cannot believe, but it would be more honest if you had said, I will not believe. The mischief lies there. Your unbelief is your fault, not your misfortune. It is a disease, but it is also a crime. It is a terrible source of misery to you, but it is, to justif- it is justly so, right? For it is an atrocious offense against God, the God of truth. It's an atrocious offense not to believe. And I think that's, sometimes we think, oh, well, I, God surely, he doesn't care whether I believe or not. I just, he'll be merciful to me. And no. It's an atrocious offense. Now, this is not the words of Scripture here, but I think what Spurgeon is saying is is he's pulling from words of Scripture, and he can say it's an atrocious offense. But what I really want to point out to you is that when he says here, you have said, I cannot believe, but it would be more honest if you had said, I will not believe. Because that's really where we're at. If we're just very candidly honest with ourselves, we can believe. Today, if, if you're here and, and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I just want to let you know I'm thankful I'm here and I pray the Lord is using our time to, to be a blessing to you and reveal himself to you. But don't walk away saying, I can't believe that. No, you can. You choose not to. You will not to. I will not believe. There's a hardness in our heart. And that's why Christ has to, to come into our heart and transform us because If he does not do that, we are dead, and we cannot believe. That's true. But when Christ comes, we can believe. We can believe. And so we can can embrace that, right? So what's the second warning we see here in this text? Sin will harden your heart. Sin will harden your heart. Notice that he says, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he says, an unbelieving heart, which has sin in it, will lead us away, and it will harden our heart. That's how we get a hard heart. And so I'm going to just point out a couple things. Do you know someone that um, maybe has attended church some, but but you know that they're in sin, and and they've they've moved away from God because of sin, because they're they're struggling with certain sins, or they're embracing certain sins, they're, they're willfully moving in that direction, and what happens? Do you think they grow closer to God at that moment? No. They move away. The author is just pointing something out here that we already know, right? Unbelieving hearts leading to you to fall away from the living God. We, we separate ourselves. I mean, you can go back and look at the first issue there in the Garden of Eden. Cain, right? His unbelieving heart banished him ultimately because he would not admit that what he had done was wrong. He wouldn't ask for forgiveness. He would not repent. And so God banishes him. It leads us apart. We see it all over the text of Scripture. Unbelieving hearts lead us away, and sin is the thing that hardens our heart. Because when we allow sin in, 
it, brings a, it puts a callus over our heart. We, we get comfortable with our sin. We, we, we make a friends with it. We, we begin to just say, well, it's okay. It's not that bad. No, God is not wanting that because he understands that when we do that, we will harden our heart totally. And one day we will be so hard that we will not then be receptive to the Holy Spirit any longer. And, and we don't worry about that. And you should absolutely worry about that because the Holy Spirit is speaking today. And if you've hardened your heart and it continues to get harder, one day you will not even hear anymore. And we can see in Romans 1 and 2, that's exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. All right. He goes on there and he says, but ex- extort, ex- exhort one another every day. So this word to exhort, what's it mean? To strongly encourage. To strongly encourage. So what is the, what is the author saying? This is, if you want to battle this thing, this unbelieving potential evil heart in you that's going to lead you away, the way that you combat that it's in the body of Christ, you exhort one another. You, you get in the mix and you exhort one another. You remind each other of the faith that we have. You remind each other of the, of the truth that we have in Christ, of the, the promises of Scripture, the prophecy that's been fulfilled. You do that. And so one of the ways that you see that we do that is when we, when we preach the Word of God, that's what we're doing. We're exhorting the Word of God. We're exhorting you. We're strongly encouraging you to believe in this. But I'll tell you what. When you sing, you're exhorting one another. When I stand in the back and I hear you singing and I'm singing with you, I, I'm, I've been exhorted. I, I see the fellowship, the worship that's coming, and it encourages me. It reminds me of who I am and, and what God has done in my heart, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's exhorting all of those things. When we, we have relationships with one another, when we encourage one another, when we do Bible studies with one another, we're exhorting one another. When we're having fellowship out in the lobby, when we're doing all of those things, we're exhorting one another. It's so important. Why? I believe it's one of the reasons why God has put the church together because we need to be together to do that. We need to be known. And part of the problem is, is that if we're not coming to church, if we're not being in the fellowship with one another, we don't know each other, how can you exhort somebody that you're not even with? That's one of the reasons why we've, we've been so... We didn't have online church until COVID because we said, look, we're not going to do that because it is not church. And then... The world had to go and all get funky, and, and we had to do it because we understood and there was reasons to do it, but, but I, I'm, not, I'm not holding up our live stream and saying, oh, everybody should go there. I understand that if you can't make it here, it's a blessing, and I agree with that, but if you can do it, and if you can step out and be comfortable and be here and trust the Lord, then you need to be in the fellowship of the, of the church. That's what church is, and because we need to exhort one another. We need to remind each other. What is it? Why do you think Scripture says we should confess our sins to one another daily, right? Because we, we, we don't want the sin to hide in our hearts, and we don't want to, you know, make it a safe place for it. We want to bring it into the light, as John says in chapter 3. We want to get it out, because when we do that, it's deceitful, and we need to get it out. We're going to see that here in just a second. So what's the second command he gives us? We need to exhort one another every day. Every day, he says. That means we need to be encouraged every day. So it means if you come to church once a month and you're not in a Bible study and you're not around other believers, you're getting it maybe once a month if you know anybody. Not enough, folks. Not enough. Truth number one. Fellowship with believers helps us from being deceived by sin. Fellowship with believers, helps us to be deceived by sin. I just want to kind of tear that just apart. Because at the end of verse 13, what does it say? That you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, 
Sin is an enemy, and it's deceitful. It's working its way in. It's always lying and conniving to get in, and we're, it's causing us to justify our sin and be comfortable with us, and, and we become to make home to it, and we should not do that. And so one of the things that the believers do is it helps us to, we admonish one another. Scripture says that over and over, and I'll just give you one passage here. Paul in or excuse me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We teach. We teach in a lot of things we do. We have teaching going on in children's ministry, student ministry. We have teaching going on here. We have teaching in life groups. We have teaching in Bible studies. We teach. We even teach with the music we sing and because you're singing things that we want to be biblically accurate and to glorify God. We're teaching in everything we do. We teach our children by how we live our life, how we, how we hate our sin, how we conduct ourselves, how we speak. All of those things are teaching things, right? And we admonish one another. Now, nobody likes that, but that's a huge piece of the Christian faith. We admonish one another. I mean, you get called on the carpet when you're doing something you shouldn't. I, I, obviously, I'm a part of the elder team as one of the pastors here, and I'm an elder here. And, and um, you know, if you guys don't know this, I can get passionate about certain things at times. And um, a while back, I probably was a little overly passionate and probably disrespectful in one of our elder meetings. And so this last meeting we had last Thursday, I kind of said, hey, how did you, you think that went? And I got admonished a little bit. And they were right. And so I ask for forgiveness, and, and, but I don't, I don't reject that admonishment. I, I welcome it. I, I, I want it. After first service, a man came back here and said, hey, uh, you, you know, appreciate the message, but there's this one line that you said, and you didn't explain that very well. And he said, I'm really sorry about telling you this. I said, no, it's okay. Right? I, I, as a believer, I want to be admonished. I, I, if I'm wrong, tell me, Right? Then it says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your heart. When we sing together, we're, once again, we're, we're just loving one another. We're in participating in the fellowship of the kingdom. It's a great thing because fellowship with believers helps us from being deceived by sin. We bring our sin into the light. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. For we have come to share Christ if indeed we hold, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't, once again, he's, refer, he's reminding them again not to harden their hearts, but this idea that, that if indeed we hold, we share in Christ, right? This idea, once again, I don't want you to hear that we have to, we have to do the holding. We have to do all of it. We do have to persevere here. But God ultimately holds us. And so it's not that I have to persevere and never sin. Don't, don't hear that. We talked about this last week. When we persevere, it's evidence that we have been born again. When we look at each other and we're exhorting each other and we see people persevering in their walk in the, in the sense of they're working out their faith, they're, they're continuing to strive, they're continuing to hate their sin, it's evidence that they're doing that. It's a, it's a confidence that we need to give one another and remind them. And so he says, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, if that happens and we continue to do that, then we share in Christ. And so what's the second truth here? The second truth is, if we persevere to the end, we will see Christ. We will see Christ. I want to take you to 1 Peter. He kind of references this and how this works, this persevering to the end. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, second part of 3 through 5. It says, according to his great mercy, 
So once again, we see already starting out that the mercy of God is at work here. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God is doing something. He's the one working in us to cause us to be born again. And he's doing that through a living hope of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Then he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you, or kept in heaven for you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So what is he saying here? What's Peter saying? He says, look, God is doing the work. He's holding you. He's the one holding your faith. He's given you faith. It says there, he causes us to be born again. That's his work. It's his great mercy. He's set aside for us something, right? An inheritance that is imperishable. Praise God. Undefiled, right? It's perfect and unfading. It's glorious and it never loses any of its glory. Kept for you, right? Kept in heaven for you. Who's doing the keeping? God is doing the keeping. Who, by the pow- God's power, are being guarded through faith. He is the author of faith. He's given us faith, and so we persevere in faith, and God is holding those things for us, but he's also holding us. And the way that we know that is we continue to persevere. It's, it's this beautiful picture of these two things happening Existing, we, we have a responsibility to believe, but it is God working in us. And the way that we know that God is working in us is that we see the evidence of our, our perseverance. It encourages us, and we can exhort each other that way. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. Now he begins to say, okay, these were your grandparents, your great-grandparents, whatever. Um, I, I want to I I remind you who they were, right? Don't let don't let's them hold them up too high, because remember who they were? It says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? He's just pointing to them and said, look, yeah, all those people that got set free by the incredible works of God and the mercy of God, those are the ones that rebelled, right? Those are the ones that rebelled. In fact, I'm going to take you to Psalm 106. I'm going to read several pieces of this psalm. I would encourage you to go and, and read it. And I think Psalm 78 is another great one that talks about this, this thing that happened when they, they left the um, they left Egypt and, and how their hearts were. In Psalm 106, verses 6 and 7, it starts out, and the psalmist says this. He says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love and rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. <laughs> Notice how he's really kind of bringing them down. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. He's talking about the ple- pr- promised land that they were offered. Having no faith in the promise, they murmured in their hearts, and they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. After all that he had done, even the writer here in the psalmist, before we get to the New Testament, is acknowledging their willful unbelief at the time they were set free. And they're saying they're not going to enter God's rest because of their incredible unbelief. We could see that, like I said, I encourage you to read, Psalm, I think it's Psalm 78 as well. So what's the third warning here? Knowing is not believing. Knowing is not believing. 
if you look back at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? They knew, they saw, they were aware of what God was doing. They saw the Red Sea get split. They saw all the plagues in Egypt. They saw the man every morning on the ground. They saw on Friday, the, the day before the Sabbath, there was enough for two portions. They saw the water coming out from the rock that, that God provided. They saw the quail. They saw all of it. They knew, and yet they did not believe. And because knowing is not believing. You can know intellectually and not believe. You cannot surrender. You can do that. Our heart is hard. You must surrender your heart. Knowing is not believing. So important for our culture today to realize that. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. We've got to keep going here. And with whom he provoked for 40 years. Right? So now the author's just saying, these people, God was provoked for 40 years with these people. They just would not yield. They would not believe. They grumbled about everything. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Now he's just saying, your, your ancestors not only rebelled and did not believe, but God would not let her end of the rest, and so they died in the wilderness. That's the consequence here, folks. If you do not believe this great hope that we have in Christ and the Messiah, and you don't realize who he is, then, then we're going to be like your grandparents or, or grandfather. We're going to die in the wilderness. We're going to die without hope. We're not going to be entering into the rest. And I think that is so true for our culture today. We need to just understand that God has done a mighty thing in Christ, and if we do not accept that and we do not believe, there is no other opportunity for salvation except through him. In Numbers, the right, Moses writes it this way. Numbers 14, 29-30. It says, your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. And all of your numbers listed in the census from 20 years old and upwards who have grumbled against me, not one shall enter the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of, I can't get that word down, so I'm going to pass. And Joshua, the son of Nun. Two men out of 12 were sent into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham and said, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. I'm going to take you to this land flowing of milk and honey, and you're going to go in, and I'm going to promise that you're going to be able to conquer the inhabitants, and I'm going to give it to you. So send 12 men in to spy it out and figure it out how you're going to do it. They come back, and what happens? Ten of them said, we're chicken. We're not going. There's too many people there. It's not going to happen. Didn't God just say that he was going to give it to you? Didn't God just deliver you from Egypt, the most powerful entity around? Didn't he split the Red Sea? You can't take him for his word? Two men said, no, we should do it. We can do this. God has promised it. Caleb and Joshua. And so when scripture says there is a wide path and many will go that way, and it leads to destruction, and there'll be a narrow path that leads to life, and few will find it, 10 and 12, 10 and 2. It's there. Wide path. Many will go that way. They will not believe. Two will go. And so consequently, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And they murmured. They murmured. They grumbled. As Christians, we should not be mumbling and grumbling about things. God has, has given you life. He sustains you. He's died for you. He's given you eternity if you will believe. He's done all of that. What do you have to grumble about? And Paul says, rejoice always. I say again, rejoice. Like, yeah, we're going to die someday. We're going to suffer. We have eternity. What's the, what's the point of grumbling here? What, what more do you want God to do for you? You've been, you're going to be disobedient, and yet God has forgiven you if you believe. Why are you grumbling? 
That's why I just want church, we should not be grumblers. We should not be known for grumbling. We should, not be, we should be content with all that God has given us. Even the hardship, we know that God is working in our suffering to bring about his glory and our perfection. So we see here, what's the fourth warning? Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Their bodies fell in the wilderness. Their disobedience led to sin, which leads to death. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear? Once again, he's referencing them again, third time. And to whom did he swear that, he would, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? He's just saying, didn't he say that they would not enter the rest? You think they were great, they were, they were your ancestors, but didn't, didn't, isn't their disobedience? And he told them they wouldn't enter the rest. He's just pointing it out, which leads to truth number three. Disobedience is a byproduct of unbelief. Disobedience is a byproduct of unbelief. So when we don't believe, we will live in disobedience. Now, I'm not saying if we believe, we'll have perfect obedience. But I'm telling you that disobedience is absolutely a byproduct of unbelief. And so we must believe. And that's why we exhort each other to believe. Because when we do that, we will be more obedient. We'll be more obedient. All right. Last verse, 19. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Why were they unable? Because of unbelief. They were unable. He's just saying, see, they weren't able to enter. It wasn't, they were able. I mean, they could have, but they didn't believe. It was their fault. It wasn't God's fault. They were unbelieving. So see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief, which leads to truth point number four. Unbelief, not sin, keeps us from entering God's rest. Now, I want to clarify that a little bit. Unbelief is what keeps us from entering God's rest. Now, you could argue that sin also keeps us from entering. But Christ has, has reconciled and atoned for our sin. So there's, there's, a, there's a fix for that. There's no fix for unbelief. So ultimately, unbelief is what gives us, doesn't give us rest. We can have sin, not that God wants us to have sin. He wants us to hate our sin. He wants us to deny and confess and to live holy before him. But sin is not ultimately the thing that's going to keep us because Christ atoned for our sin. And so that we enter into grace. But with unbelief, there is no atoning for that. Because you've not trusted in the person and the work of Christ. There's no atoning for that. There's atoning for sin, but there's no atoning for unbelief. And so unbelief, not sin, ultimately keeps us from entering God's rest. Paul says it this way, and I think this is so important. In 1 Corinthians, he's, he's, Paul is looking back on this event some, you know, in the Old Testament where they were delivered and and he, he kind of frames it up this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 11. He's reminding the church now what, what took place. And he's saying, okay, yeah, this is a big deal in the past, what they did. And so he's kind of giving some commentary on it here. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. He's talking about his brethren here in the Old Testament. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They must not indulge in, we, uh, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put, to, put Christ to the test. That, that, so we shouldn't take his, his grace for granted. The people in the wilderness took for granted all the things that God did to lead them out and then they abused it. And, and many of us in the church, I think, we struggle to, to take God's grace for granted we should live holy, even though, yes, we've been, he's died for us, but we should want to live holy before him. 
as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now listen to this one. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. People got destroyed for grumbling. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, we are living in the end of the ages because we're in the end of grace. It is the final chapter of what God is doing before he brings all things to conclusion in glory. And he's just saying, look, everything that took place as we reflect, it's all been given to us as an example. Do not live that way, to live holy before the Lord. Do not take his grace for granted. Do not grumble. Do not live in sexual immorality. And if you do, you've got to be so careful because you could end up and not enter God's rest because those things begin to identify that you may not have a believing heart. And so what's the takeaway this morning? Unbelief is not a failure to understand God. It is a decision to oppose God. I want you to hear that again. Unbelief is not a failure to understand God. It is a decision to oppose God. So this morning... If you're not believing, you don't believe in what I've just said. You don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I love you. I respect your option to do that. But don't say that I don't understand enough. No. It's a decision to oppose God. You're setting your heart against him. He will answer honest questions, and, and I believe that he is gracious, and he he. Terry's with us and he's long-suffering. And so I'm not saying that if you don't believe this morning that it's hopeless for you. I'm not saying that. I think God is very gracious and will continue to present opportunities. But at some point, if you harden your heart long enough, if you live in sin long enough, it is a very good chance that your heart will become so hard you will not give in and, and be born again. God, it's, 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 our, it's our rebellion. But he, just like in the wilderness there, he, 40 years, he, he was like, and yet they would not, they would not break. Unbelief is not a failure to understand God. Look, we can't fully understand God. We'll never fully understand God. Had a man come back to this, you know, back in the pastor's corner after first service. He says, I don't understand the Trinity. I said, well, here, here's what I understand about it, but we're never going to understand it. I don't understand how God lives forever, but I believe it, right? I understand how Jesus can be sinless and be God, fully man and fully flesh, but I believe it because there's been so much other evidence that I believe I can trust that. So we're never going to fully understand. It's the fact, will you oppose God or will you just surrender and trust him? And so what does Paul say as we wrap up here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21? He's writing to the church. He says, we implore you, implore. I'm imploring you today. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. It means to surrender, to be made right through the belief, Right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have our righteousness in him. Christ became sin for us and punished and died for us so that we do not have to. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So to hear it, but had it no power in your life. Right? For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. 
It's the urgency. It's the urgency. Now is the day. There's no point to put this off. This is, this, the, the author's just saying this is true. This is who it is. This is who he is. This is what he's done. And there's a risk. If you do not believe, you will, may not enter God's rest. So do not put this off. And I would just tell you today, if you're here and this is the first time you've heard the gospel, or maybe you've heard it many times, but you have not yielded, you have not believed, today you can believe. I could ask you to pray a prayer, raise your hand, and that would be fine. But you need to believe in your heart, between you and the Lord, to say, I believe this, Father. I surrender my life to you. I believe in Jesus and the work of the cross. I'm a sinner. Please save me. Come and make me a new creation. And so what's your next step today? Just that. Surrender your life to Christ. We sang about that in, I think, the second song. The decision is ours to make. It's an act of our will. God is working in our lives. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us. We need to decide, will I yield and will I believe? Will I surrender? I pray that you will surrender to him today. As Christians, we surrender every moment of every day to him. I pray that as a believer, we will continue to walk in holiness. We will hate our sin We will repent, we will bring it into the light, we'll be known, we'll exhort one another so that we will stay away from the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word today. Thank you how it is so clear and so poignant in our life. Father, we thank you that that it's wrapped in love. Father, you've done these things because you, you love and you want us to come to repentance. You want to forgive. You've made a sacrifice for us. No matter what we've done, you've said, come. Yield, surrender, and I will take care of it. I will take all of your sin. I have taken all of your sin, and I've put it upon my son, so just come and surrender. Un- unbelief is the thing that keeps us from you, Father. So pray that you will give us faith to believe, that you will make us a new creation, you'll give us a new heart, you'll cause us to be born again. And may that truth be happening in hearts even right now for your glory. And for your church, Father, I pray that we will continue to want to live holy for your purposes so that we will exhort one another and we will persevere with one another until someday we see you face to face. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.